1: Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate
2: responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta.
1: I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring out of respect. There are
0: literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly.
2: Welcome into the RodWire NFL podcast. It is Thursday, January twenty first. I am your host, John McCagney, joined as always by Mario Puig. It is conference championship weekend in the NFL, so very exciting. We got a couple of games here, very much um, kind of living up to the hype. But, you know, it feels like we got the four best teams, pretty much for the most part. I think that you know some arguments could be made outside of it, but I mean, Bills Chiefs feels like the right matchup for for the afc in my opinion and, and bucks packers yeah. the, the way that the bucks played down the stretch hard to argue with them uh going more into importantly the
1: way new orleans played down the stretch <laughs> yes. you yes. not be allowed to play <laughs>
2: <laughs> that can you imagine how bad that would have been
1: uh i mean i don't want to because i i'd that is the scenario I wanted. I wanted the Packers to be the NFC team, so I was hoping that Breeze and his ridiculously busted arm would go to Lambeau to just. Uh, it, it would also have provided like some some better closure to Breeze's overall career arc. Like going back to Big Ten land, it's like you could have the final game of his career be like a loss against Wisconsin oh, in Wisconsin. Cool. Uh, it's it's all unnatural and and uh, vile that it that it happened so far away from. The Great Midwest, but uh, yeah. In any case, Tampa Bay is much better, and I hate Tom Brady, and uh, I like the Packers, so I-, I wanted to avoid the whole thing and just you know get the good guys in. And now it's at risk. It is at risk. Um,
2: yeah, the the battle for the soul of the NFC. Uh, is upon us, and uh, we. So yeah, we'll we'll dive in on that here in a sec. Uh, we also are going to get into Mario's latest uh, Dynasty Watch article talking about uh, the running backs heading into this class of 2021. An interesting group. Um, so we we'll have a lot to get to there. But Mario, let's go ahead. Let's break things down for Conference Championship Weekend. Let's lead things off with. That NFC Championship game that, that kicks off 305 Sunday. We got Packers again playing host to the Buccaneers. The Packers three-point favorites according to points bet. Um, so, you know, d- depending on, on where you're doing your, your line shopping, that, that's kind of where it's settling in most spots. Uh, three and a half over on DraftKings. Open up at four, moved up a little bit to, to Packers minus four and a half now, now has summarily been bet back down to packers minus three and a half the the total has pretty much hovered around 51 maybe 51 and a half um for most of the week so some points are expected to be scored in this one the buccaneers really robbed me of the over last week by the way now now that i'm talking about the total I, they were they had that chance to kick the field goal to push it push it to the over and i also had the the bucks money line so that would have been great but
1: oh, sorry, it was all man. for not so yeah n- now I'm extra like. Uh, vendetta against this buccaneers there's there's infernal energy all around well it's tom brady it's not so much the buccaneers there's a little bit of infernal energy i guess around like antonio brown and uh bruce arians but tom brady may be like the dark lord itself and it's it's uh it's it's going back to that south park episode you can't bet on satan john like, no. he'll take your money. Um, so, yeah, I, I I don't know what to do as far as betting advice for this game. I can't in good conscience recommend anyone wager on, you know, the, the Dark Prince. But uh, it looks like that's where the sharp money is for the most part. Like, there's, according to covers, 58% of the public is betting on the Packers. And yet the spread has gone from 3.5 to 3. So... Maybe, maybe, maybe some of those sharp dollars are also hedging a little bit with, with you know, other ways that they can wager on the Packers aside from the the spread itself. But it looks like at the very least, the people who have more spare funds available are, are wagering on it being closer than three and a half, uh, even if they think Packers will win. So, uh, I have to say, based on my look at the matchups. I mean, I know that they played already, and I know that Tampa Bay beat them that week. But a couple things. It's like one game just doesn't necessarily mean that much. Two games wouldn't necessarily mean that much, as the Tampa-New Orleans Mm -hmm. uh, trilogy showed. And the game was in Tampa Bay, and it was also one of those games where the script went violently off course at one pivotal point. Yeah, it it swung
2: on like a three-series sequence.
1: Well, specifically that Rodgers touchdown run that they called back. Mm. And the, uh, so it's like if there's no hold on that player and if, if either Rodgers scores on that player or they otherwise score a touchdown and Tampa just has one of those two drives go differently, it's just like a totally different game script. It's it's uh, it's it's not necessarily that the Packers would have won, but I, I just mean to say like the specific results as they occurred don't necessarily mean anything, especially when we're ca- asking questions about well, what happens, you know, three months later when they're in Lambeau instead of Tampa Bay? I know Antonio Brown is on the—he's on the team, and he's well uh, implemented into the the uh, wide receiver rotation this time around. I just don't know if it really matters much. I don't know—I don't know what the Packers are going to do on defense exactly. Like they don't use Jair as a shadow corner. Uh, they might have on Adam Thielen earlier this year, but I think it was only one time in the two matchups, and I don't think he's really done it. Any other time, it seems like they value him being on the left side and then using, you know, using the assumption that he will shut down that part of the field simply as a way to, you know, more micromanage the remaining part of the field where they're like, okay, we know that by not using Jair as a shadow that we're going to leave Kevin King On Mike Evans a bunch, and we're going to get Antonio Brown on Kevin King a little bit, but we think we can give King enough help between our you know three other safeties that we often have on the field, and at the very least two, you know one of which Savage is a four three guy, so he's basically like a fourth corner even when he's playing safety. I think it's like they that's how the theory of it works, and so when you try to look at the matchup on the on the basis of like Evans versus King, that's a huge red flag for the Packers because Kevin King is not good, and Mike Evans is a Hall of Fame talent. And yet I don't know if that matchup is what will matter. Like, I don't know if the matchup will basically occur in practice as much as it looks like it might on paper, because in practice it might be more like instead of Kevin King covering Mike Evans one-on-one Kevin King's job is to just kind of like cover the sideline and downfield and maintain outside leverage to keep Evans inside and, and almost like bait uh, Brady into throwing some sort of post that maybe he shouldn't, he, he like maybe he won't see the robber. Maybe maybe Savage, Will Redmond, whoever it is, will, will kind of be playing robber and, and not so much, uh, you know, having King one on one with Evans, but having the two of them sort of tag teaming subtly against him while, um, you know, keeping just leaving Jair with no help because he doesn't need it. And then at that point, you basically have to just kind of like account for Gronk, account for Antonio Brown. And I feel like they've got the pieces to do it. Uh, especially if those safeties play pretty well, which seems like they usually do. So, with all of that, and with the Lambo factor, and with me currently believing that Tom Brady is still basically smoke and mirrors, I'm I'm not saying the smoke and mirrors can't occur here. I'm not, and I definitely don't want to say that Brady will be affected by the moment or anything. Obviously, that's not going to happen.
2: No, but nor nor like, the conditions. You know, like it, usually you'd be like, oh, Tampa, like you know, um. You know, go, going up to Lambeau in January—that's that's gonna be. But like, you know, Br- Brady, I think like the the least possible phased person by by that sort of thing.
1: Well, on a psychological level, yes, but I think on the physical level, it will matter somewhat. And we, by the way, people got to check the weather probably that day of the game because at least in Madison here, the weather's been insane all week. Like we were at we were at like zero degrees yesterday, yesterday morning. morning. And then by the afternoon, we had 50-mile-per-hour winds. And then a couple hours later, it was like 40 degrees. Yeah, it was, and getting, not it was getting
2: warmer as, the, as like the night went on. It was very strange.
1: Yeah, so like you you would have had like an ice bowl at 8, 8 a.m. here. And then by 2 p.m., you would have just had to like cancel the game because of the winds. But then by 8 o'clock, it would have been like, this is a nice uh, – this is like a nice Plains fall weather kind of setting. So you don't know what, what the hell the weather is going to be right now. The worse the weather it gets – I think the more it suits the Packers just because uh, Aaron Rodgers has always been a guy who has effortless velocity, like cannon for an arm. Yep. Brady didn't. And that as much as like he's not going to be psychologically affected and as much as, you know, he probably doesn't have like the small hands problem or anything like that. But, you know, the colder the gets, the colder it gets, the heavier that ball gets, the more it hurts to even handle it. Uh, it's it's not going to be as easy to drive the ball, especially the way that they've gotten accustomed to those receivers producing. It's like you're not getting that receiver production that you're accustomed to if you're just running bubble screens because the the ball just you know drops out of the air in the cold are are you
2: suggesting that you know maybe maybe some manipulation of of the ball would be a good idea
1: (laughs) if they can they should look into it uh because yeah rogers can play in the cold for sure it doesn't matter to him at all uh and brady it's like it doesn't matter on a psychological level like from or he played at michigan and obviously he's at foxborough for 25 years or whatever uh that part won't affect him but at 43, I do think the lack of velocity and, and just the general physical mo- – like his, his joints are going to be creakier if it's cold enough. Like he, if, yeah, the whole if he's thing, getting
2: hit by Zadarius and Preston Smith coming off the edge, like that, those crunches are going to hurt a little bit more.
1: Yeah, they got to keep him clean. And it's like, you know, as much as Brady doesn't throw deep the way he used to be able to, you can't really uh, – like like they're still dependent on getting some of those downfield plays for, for the way they've succeeded lately. Like they've needed to make big plays. Those receivers needed to make big plays. And it's like, if if you're doing deep drops against this pass rush, that's, that's something that can go wrong wherever you're playing. And if you're doing just short step drops against this defense, I feel like they can adjust to that. And even if they don't, that doesn't suit the playmaking tendencies of Evans or even really like Antonio Brown. I mean, I, mean, I know he's, he's had, a lot of targets underneath but they hadn't gone for much until that washington game and the atlanta game he didn't really have any big plays and those were more downfield so he's
2: he's dealing uh, with the knee too i mean that i think that's what that's worth noting i mean he was very very much limited um at the end of last week's game or you know was knocked out of it for for a while if i remember correctly and then um yeah i believe he did not practice on wednesday either so it almost could be and maybe i'm preaching to the choir here but you could almost argue especially with the way that a couple of these guys i about to mention made plays down the stretch of of sunday's game but it's almost like an ad- addition by subtraction you get antonio brown off the field and, and you feel less pressure to like force the ball to him and then you have plays like the tyler johnson one or the scotty miller one And it's like why why didn't they stick with those guys
1: yeah, I would have stuck with them if I was them. Uh, I guess Tom Brady had some reason in mind, but you know, Scott Scott Miller's results spoke for itself, and really Tyler Johnson's too. So, uh, the great, we'll greatest
2: catch that uh, that Joe Buck had ever seen, or something.
1: Right, right. It was really good, but uh, I think Joe can remember another one if he tried for, you know, two seconds. (laughs) I think that uh, in any case, Tom Brady, there's reason to think in this setting he might need a little more yards after the catch production. And I don't know. I don't know what I I, I guess, you know, they're going to look to try to set up the big play somehow. I just don't know. Short of uh, a Packers defensive back, just totally screwing up. And I guess I would expect Kevin King to be the guy, if any of them. But unless they just totally blow it, uh, like blow the coverage entirely, I don't know how they can really get an edge there. And I don't really see anyone other than Godwin as a yards after the catch guy. So I just I feel like there's there's limitations here for Brady in in many ways and uh, not just limitations like substantial risks to kind of just throw him off entirely. He's had too many bad moments this year for a guy with his numbers. Like it's just there's a lot of just fake numbers going on there. And there's, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of tricks you can do to hide the, the, you know, to make this, this fake, this fraudulent product look the way it has, especially during this, you know, like the Lions game, the the, Fal- the Falcons game that people are starting to think of, like even against the Saints, he struggled for most of that game. Yep. And this defense is tougher by most measures, especially the ones pertinent to, to the matchups, because like the Saints secondary was not very good all year. And yet he still struggled. Their, their pass rush carried them all year being great as it is but Green Bay has both the pass rush and at least some secondary personnel yeah
2: no so yeah the Packers have that that type of uh j- my guy Jim Coventry our guy Jim Coventry said like the, the modern defense that that you know aims to take away the pass foot and tries to make you uh, like a, a more of a run funnel offense tries to take away the pass as much as you can so yeah the Packers definitely uh fit that bill in that sense and you know you also may,
1: yeah Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette both strike me as kind of cold weather soft or likely to be cold weather soft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I mean, I like Ronald Jones enough overall, but it's like, has he ever played in the cold? I don't know if he's ever played in the cold. And in any case,
2: maybe like a, a road game at Colorado or Utah.
1: Yeah, it's like, that's it. And, uh, you know, I think he's a good player. You don't need to be a, a psycho, you know, mad dog of a of a running back to be a good player in the cold. But it does help.
2: Yeah it absolutely does um so yeah speaking of you know i I would be interested to see if if aj Dillon gets back to 100 percent for this one they
1: gotta get him going you have you have to bring that pain in this setting you absolutely do i mean that that like
2: even if he wasn't gonna have that big
1: of a role this year like january football and lambeau do it i was i was shocked that they had aj Dillon opening that game over jamal williams but it was totally the right call and if they stick with that it's like, man, that sucks to have to tackle that guy, especially if it's like 25 degrees or less, and it's it's like you're you've been on the field for eight minutes in a row or something, and then that guy comes in. I know modern analytics can't capture any of these dynamics, but anyone who's ever played football at any level, you could play to like Pop Warner level and understand the reason why AJ Dillon getting carries in that game is something that Tampa doesn't want. Hundred percent, dude, and
2: and uh, you know even though it's limited limited sample when it when it comes to AJ Dillon like if you look at his metrics over on the Rotowire player page like his broken tackle percentage is you know over 25% of his He's runs good. he breaks a tackle like it, yeah just crazy tons of it's yards lock, after man. contact yeah so would be very interested in, see, in seeing him getting going let's unpack the the Packers offense a little bit further um, because th- this is a Tampa Bay secondary that, you know, you you've talked about a bunch, like that they, they have some emerging talent. Sometimes they, they slip up, but still a talented group back there for the most part. You know, the 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 Packer or I'm sorry, the Buccaneers, they don't have like that Jalen Ramsey type guy to contend with Devontae Adams. So if I if I'm the Bucks, I'm just terrified that it that Devontae like really, really gets unleashed in this one.
1: Yeah, it's a it's got to be the top concern of everybody who plays the Packers as, as much as you f- would be smart to fear Aaron Jones and, you know, give the appropriate level of attention to all the other players involved. It's like Devontae Adams is the singular question that every defense faces against the Packers. So uh, I agree that, you know, they don't have a Jalen Ramsey. And I, I don't I don't say this as in like it, it's bad news for Devontae Adams, but they do have the closest thing to jalen ramsey that they have is uh like carlton davis who tends to work as a shadow corner he certainly did against michael thomas and it's, it was kind of funny watching uh, all these goldfish in fantasy football twitter who were tweeting out all these memes about like shut down carlton davis he, michael thomas can't do nothing against him, and like i probably would imagine a lot of you people were the ones being like Carlton Davis gave up 400 yards in two quarters to Tyreek Hill. What an oh, idiot. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, Hey, let's, let's keep a perspective. Like the guy can do well in certain settings. And, um, apparently Michael Thomas is someone he can do well against. I think there's some ways that his success against Michael Thomas could apply to Devonte Adams. And so far, especially that Adams doesn't have the speed to bring that Tyreek threat. And Carlton Davis is a guy who needs to play physical to, to have his, effectiveness stay stay intact because it's like the part of the theory is it's, he's this long-armed one kind of corner who disrupts your routes the, the routes of the number one receiver on the other side and uh with this di- disruption and with careful technique the fact that he runs in a mid four five low four five whatever it is uh hopefully won't show up when he's going against receivers who run like four fours and four threes we saw against tyree Hill the, he can't keep up with that kind of speed or at least he can't manage that kind of speed uh, no one can but it's like that's that's just something that doesn't suit him he needs to keep a physicality element involved to keep the game sort of in his sort of a court that's favorable for him and as much as uh, as much as Adams isn't fast and as much as maybe Carlton Davis ma- mirrors him well athletically I still think that Adams with the scheming detail involved, uh, Matt LaFleur's scheming, uh, which has been just infallible all year and including last week, it's like I still think it ends up being a setting where Davis will need help. And I think that Tampa Bay nonetheless still will have to have Adams shadowed by Carlton Davis just because I think it would suit Jamel Dean worse than Davis to go against Devontae Adams and they can – get Adams matched up against him and Dean's a really good corner I just think he's he's a guy who at like 6'1, 215, running the low 4'3 that he does he's more of like a linear and upright athlete and so you would want Jamel Dean to be kind of like a if you were if the, if you were going against Mike Evans you would want Jamel Dean to be the corner on him because it's like he's he's the perfect corner to have against a 6'4 receiver receiver who, who's really tough to stop uh, because of just how big and athletic they are. Jamel Dean is like a hyper, you know, an oversized hyper athletic corner, but he's not really meant to do the lateral game as much. And that's where Adams is so killer is like he's crossing the field all the time. Uh, they somehow get him matched up against linebackers pretty regularly. I don't think Tampa will let that happen, but um, we saw, you know, especially on that Ramsey touchdown, mm-hmm. it's like LaFleur's thinking a long time about ways that he can just get Adams free yeah, if regardless you, If your of communication
2: is, is off at all, like they're, they're going to torch you. Like, yeah, like, uh, you know, you saw all the Twitter discourse right after that play from a lot of NFL DBs just being like, you, you have to pass that off. You're not making that play yourself.
1: Right, yeah, and I guess I guess um, it's one of those things. Like, even if Tampa Bay finds a way to slow Adams, th- all the moving around before the snap that they do, all the all the clever alignments that they use to get Adams free, I, I feel like it's one of those things that even if you manage to jump through those hoops, and even if you manage to keep Carlton Davis on Devontae Adams all the time, or, or some other sort of special defensive attention. It's just it's going to have to be a, at some sort of trade off. Like, yeah, we we uh, we didn't let Adams get lined up against a linebacker all game, but we did give away all our coverages trying to chase him around through the pre snap motion. And Rogers kept find Rogers audible to you know a play action bootleg to Tanya, and, and no one covered him on the post play action and stuff like or the corner play action stuff like that. Like I, I feel like if Tampa Bay can somehow respond to to that. Uh, I don't know what you would call it. It's 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 not exactly like it's not a red herring, but it's a trap. You know, it's like if you Mm -hmm. if you want to chase around Devante Adams, uh, it's not that it's like obviously you have to stop Adams. It's not it's not a decoy. But just because you do stop him doesn't mean that you, you know, came out at a competitive advantage. Yeah, you're
2: exposing you're exposing
1: other other leaks in the boat. Yeah, you might have overextended some part of yourself and not known it until it was too late. Mm hmm. Yeah, so that yeah, that, that will be a great chess
2: match and we'll we'll see if the the Bucks defense and their defensive coordinator is is up to yeah, slowing that down because like you said, schematically the Packers have been
1: extremely, extremely um, just it's the best play calling yeah. I've ever seen, I think. Like I haven't it's not like I had a list of best play calling I've ever seen in the NFL, but I can't remember ever being just floored with, with how how consistently a uh, play caller has been ahead of the defenses. Like even Andy Reid has never had a season like this. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy.
2: It's amazing to me also that like a lot of this is like the same cast of characters that they had in 2018 when yeah, the like Packers they were unwatchable.
1: Crap. They, they have crap personnel at wide receiver. Uh, I mean, Marcus Valdez-Ganling has been good this year, uh, but he should be playing like half as many snaps as he does. They've been giving snaps to guys like Darius Shepard all year. It's mm-hmm. just nasty players who should Tyler Irvin crap. <laughs> these, these guys should not be in the league. And yet it's still having this result where just like no one can even slow them, let alone stop them.
2: Yeah. Uh, unreal. So um, I'm very excited for this one. Um, yeah, we, we kind of touched on the on the betting angle of, of it earlier. My prediction is the Packers win this one, uh, let's see, let's call it uh, 31, and the Buccaneers will score 24. So, yeah, I got the Packers by a touchdown, and I got the over.
1: Hmm, I
2: might take the under, but I like Packers by a
1: touchdown. Okay,
2: all right, there you have it. There's your NFC Championship preview. Let's jump on over to... The AFC Championship preview. We got the Bills going up against the Chiefs. Whereas in the opening matchup, we we got a couple of legendary quarterbacks. Rogers trying to fortify his um, you know his place among the greats. He's only got the one Super Bowl so far, and and Brady, you know, he can only add on to his legacy at, at this point. Whereas this Bills Chiefs game, you know, Mahomes. Trajectory-wise, on you know he's he's on that track to be the, the greatest quarterback ever. Um, Josh Allen, obviously coming along, he, nowhere near that conversation, of course, but you know get, getting a Super Bowl appearance, a very good start to to really having people take your legacy seriously. I'm not subtweeting Philip Rivers, I swear. Um, but anyway, either way, we got Chiefs. Three point favorites in this one. We know that Mahomes is banged up with a couple different issues, going through the concussion protocol. Also had the toe uh, issue as well. Yeah. So that that's not great. I think that 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 is something that that is really going to be an important factor here because part of what makes Mahomes so great is his ability when when plays break down, his ability to escape the pocket and, and you know keep keep the play alive with his feet. You know whether it's picking up a first down if everyone's covered up down the field or just waiting, waiting, waiting until Tyreek or, or Mikole or Travis Kelsey gets open down the field and he just delivers, you know, a lethal kill shot that way. Um if Mahomes is is not or if he's kind of a statue back there, that's
1: that's a problem. Yeah, it would be at the very least like a limitating, complicating factor. And I don't know how to make that call like the on either question, the concussion or the toe, but I want to suggest that, uh, at least based on the, what this this betting situation looks like, uh, the the game is you know on the board like like they have they have the the spread up they've had the over under up. I don't want to just say that means Mahomes is fine, but don't you think that if Vegas is leaving that game up and leaving the the Chiefs as the favorites, that they at least think that Mahomes is fine? Like wouldn't True. wouldn't that be just off the board if if there was a a real high risk of Mahomes missing it or playing less than eighty five percent or something like that? Yeah, the line don't, would be flipped. Like it would be Bills minus two and a half. So we have not just that, but we have you know a lot of. It looks like there's a lot of money coming in on the like more money per bet is going on the Chiefs by quite a bit because we were talking about you know the Packers are only. Are at uh, 58% of the public bets and the spread decreased from three and a half to three indicating some sharp money on the Buccaneers. We've got 60% of the betting public on the bills here with a minus three on the chiefs that has not gone down. So if it's minus three at the open and then 60% of the public bets on the bills and it stays at the same, uh, the same spread, then Some people are putting more money on the Chiefs, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. otherwise the line would move. So I I feel like at least uh, based on those things, it looks like Mahomes will be fine. You know, I certainly hope he will be. Uh, The the game looks much different in in ways that are only unpleasant to think about if he isn't fine. But the the money exchange so far seems to very much assume that he will be. Um, If he is okay, then... Yeah, Chiefs covered by more than three. Like, I, I don't know. it's. it's I, I think that you can both have a lot of respect for the Bills uh, in multiple phases of both coaching and player personnel and still see that they don't really stack up that well against the Chiefs, especially if you're talking like playoff Andy Reid. Uh, I know that's that used to be a bad thing like right Andy Reed used to be regarded as a joke with the Eagles but I think he's pretty clearly turned a corner the past couple of years these Chiefs offenses don't look anything like the Eagles offenses and those Eagles offenses were good as they were so uh, it's a different time Andy Reid's on a different level he's very careful nowadays about putting uh, tendency beaters in his playoff uh, play calling like it last year especially it was Sammy Watkins I would argue that Meikle's usage last week was one. They didn't use Meikle at all in the regular season. They would even give, like, Byron Pringle and Demarcus Robinson, the worst receiver of all time, all these snaps over Meikle Hardman. And then all of a sudden in the playoffs it changed. Kind of like all of a sudden last year in the playoffs, Sammy Watkins starts running downfield and starts getting targets. And, oh, crap, he's still good too? We forgot about that because they didn't use him all year. Uh, or not since week one against the Jaguars anyway. Um, so it's like I, I think that – McDermott is the kind of coach who will have his defense prepared to whatever reasonable expectation you could have for him. But I don't know what's a reasonable expectation against a team like the Chiefs if Pat Mahomes is on the field. Because, you know, Josh Allen's had a great year, yes, but there is nothing particularly close about these two players. And I know we all like to freak out about eight game samples with uh, a host of anomalous conditions informing the results and then make drastic conclusions. uh, You know, in this, this, this fan fiction, like sort of environment that's taking place on internet, the, the, the Twitter sports communities nowadays, but Pat Mahomes is magnitudes better than Josh Allen. I think that if you take like a sober historical perspective around Josh Allen, as far as who he might compare to, uh, and especially if you're giving enough credit to Brian Dable, that offensive line and those receivers, then Josh Allen is not some sort of Hall of Fame player. He's more like a Dante Culpepper, and that people are thinking that's like an insult. But Dante Culpepper was on top of the league for like three or four he years. Was, I mean, I love Dante Culpepper. Yeah, go also, watch Randy. cover
2: cover of the first Madden that was on that new generation of a
1: uh, of video game consoles. You yeah, was like GameCube. People should watch, you know, Randy Moss Vikings highlights and and see how bad Culpepper looks in those. If they think that's an insult, he was like the first. He he was like the fantasy cheat code. Uh, the the first one. I I mean, I guess Randall Cunningham might have been kind of like that. But I remember like Culpepper was. All the fantasy rage because he's getting these 40 point games because he runs, he ran for three touchdowns against the Bears in his first start. And, you know, he's, he's throwing for 40 touchdowns and uh, he got beat up because he's a 6'4, 260 guy who tries to run a lot and takes yeah. some big hits. And, uh, you know, not to say Allen will have that result too, but it's, you know, the, being reaching this particular peak. Uh, that he has is not unique in NFL history. And you can't get people to understand perspectives like that. Mahomes is unique in NFL history. And that's, that's just, you know, I, in my opinion, anyway, that's just how it is. And if, if you're talking magnitudes like that, then the bills should be the heavy underdogs not, or not, you know, not heavy, whatever that constitutes, like, but like closer to like six and a half or five and a half, yeah, at least like a four and a half, five and a half kind of thing, because it's like, we are not going to have any trouble Ten years from now, recalling which of these quarterbacks was better than the other, it's it, it'll be a stupid question at that point. Uh, but right now, when people have you know goldfish brain and full you know g- going full throttle with with a no object permanence whatsoever, people are working themselves up to some weird hyperboles at, at this point with Josh Allen. And it's like, I see the way that the Bills make it happen if Mahomes is limited or if Mahomes is out, but if Mahomes is in. Then you're gonna have to deal with Tyreek Hill's speed and Pat Mahomes' arm and Andy Reid probably playing uh, calling some plays that you haven't seen him call yep. this year or last. Question for and you. And oh, that's that's yeah, that's hard enough to deal with. But like the Bills are not. a a particularly toolsy defense. Like they do money ball stuff. It's like Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde. Those guys were rejected as like discarded cover two corners. Like they, they would have been coveted in the nineties for Tony Dungy's defense. But when, you know, the new era showed up, they were too slow to play man coverage and nobody wants these like skinny, slow corners. Uh, So they McDermott being smart was like, well, those guys know how to cover though. I know I can, those guys know what to do if you just give them something that suits their abilities Dealing with Tyree Hill and Travis Kelsey at the same time is one of those points where you can't try to assign tasks to the best of everyone's abilities. No one has these abilities to deal with these things. We just have to basically be lucky uh, or, or come up with something just beyond genius, and I don't know what they can really do. It's like you're, just, you're putting too many reps on the field with guys like Josh Norman, Teron Johnson, Levi Wallace. Uh, Teron Johnson's a pretty good athlete, but he has had bad results all year in the slot – Levi Wallace is skinny, runs a 4.6. Josh Norman ran a four six six nine nine years ago. That's too slow. Uh, Jordan Poyer, as great as he is as a safety, and Micah Hyde, he's pretty good too. Like, they are not fast. Like, there's not much speed in that defense. Tredavious White is the fastest defensive back they have, and he runs like a 4.47. So you're going to have to do a lot of very cautious, deep zone stuff to keep Tyreek Hill minimized. And I think it's just going to be more of what we've seen basically every week this year, which is like... You either do a lot to try to contain Tyreek Hill, which I you you really only can put two safeties over the top at all times. There's no someone will come up with something I'm sure eventually, but I don't think it's going to be this week that Sean McDermott cracks uh, the code to this. And if you do, if you're just doing two safeties over the top at all times to keep Tyreek from running past you, uh, which he will do generally if you don't put those two safeties over the top then you don't have anyone who can give the help on Kelsey that you need to give. And you see Denzel Ward last week. It's like, I I wouldn't have particularly wanted that matchup because it's like as fast as Ward is. And as much as Ward is a great corner, it's like you can make a fast, talented guy all of a sudden look kind of dumb. If he's going against someone that much bigger than him, Uh, Kelsey, of course, is a very athletic player. It's not like he just, you know, boxed out Denzel Ward. He lost him on that route, but it's like, Ward has to take, you know, risks that he doesn't normally against other receivers because he knows he's he's going to get boxed out if he doesn't make a play on the ball. So he has to make a play on the ball, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like you got to give that player help and you can't unless you're not leaving those two safeties over the top. So I really don't know what anyone can do about it. It's like you just you need to come up with a blitz that gets to Mahomes before Kelsey gets out of his break. But that doesn't take that long. It's like Kelsey doesn't take. There are no seven step drops on these these big Kelsey plays. It's like sometimes Mahomes extends the play a bit, but generally it's just kind of easy for them. And you can see how easy it is in the efficiency numbers for Kelsey all year. It's like catch rates like that and yards per target touchdown percentages like these at this level of volume of usage shouldn't really be possible and like if they regress it's still like a huge advantage over any defense that they face so i just don't know um as far as stopping the kansas city offense goes i, I just don't really see it and i can well, imagine josh allen getting baited into at least a couple turnovers into in this game on the other side so we we talked about got got a lot to unpack there that was all great
2: stuff of course um you know we we mentioned at the top of the show the any any sort of parallels or any takeaways you could have from the first Packers-Bucks game, and there weren't. But this one, these two teams, of course, met up as well on that Monday night in October, and the Chiefs won, but they did so in a way that was kind of just counter to how they generally operate they they just saw that the bills were doing the stuff that you were talking about a minute ago where they're just dropping back as far as possible in the secondary and just trying to prevent that back breaking deep ball over the top and as a result you saw Clyde Edwards Hilaire run for 161 yards on 6.2 yards per carry
1: yep yeah so that's exactly right they were they were trying to stop the Tyreek Hill threat and maybe they even had another measure to kind of deal with Travis Kelsey, and maybe it was specifically in response to that that Andy Reid said, fine, we'll, we'll take 160 on the ground. Thank you. But it's it's you know, these, these are these are just the terms that we're left with when we try to negotiate the outcome of these of this matchup of this offense and this defense. It's like we saw them contain the passing game, and the cost was 160 yards from Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who I still I still think he's really good, but he wasn't an especially effective runner this year. It wasn't. No, that was far you know. and away his best game, I thought. Yeah, so it's like to for the mere chance, not even like the assurance that they actually stop Pat Mahomes and Kelsey Hill, but just for the the possibility of it carries the risk of a player of Cl- Clyde Edwards-Hilaire's caliber putting numbers like that on them. They're at risk. Even if Clyde Edwards-Hilaire can't get going for this one, it's like I think Daryl Williams can put 100 on you yep. if, if you can give up 160 to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. And I I generally believe if you give up 100 yards to Daryl Williams in any game, you've lost it. Yes. Because he's just not that good. But <laughs> um, it's, it's like they have to just sell out against the deep ball. And you can – maybe trick Mahomes into like maybe you slip a robber play with Poyer or Hyde and he doesn't see it and you you know Kelsey comes over the middle and you get a turnover. But it's like you need Mahomes to make mistakes like that for at least the way I'm looking at the math. It's like you need Mahomes to just not be himself. And that's one of those things it's possible great players inexplicably have bad games sometimes, even in high stakes situations. But that's specifically to me the type of, you know, the uh, likelihood that we're talking here which doesn't strike me as very much
2: nope so uh, yeah i don't i don't really see Mahomes wilting in this and again you know like the the chiefs kind of have the bills on the ropes it feels like coming in uh, on this one because you know you can try to do the thing again where where you try to stop the the deep ball but then you end up just getting gutted on the ground instead and you and you pick that path Uh, towards the end of your season or you try to play a little bit more conventional and then you 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 certainly invite the the threats of 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 Kelsey and Tyreek Hill or Mecole Hardman uh, getting over the top of your defense and and you know I don't know how well the Bills can play catch up necessarily.
1: Also if if the Chiefs keep acting on this Mecole Hardman threat you will see that passing game go to another level yet I know people don't think it's possible but Meikle Hardman's efficiency through two years is just absurd. He's basically been automatic, and that was in his third and fourth years playing receiver. He doesn't turn 23 until March. If they throw – it's a simple fact. If they had thrown to him more and taken some of those targets that went to, especially Demarcus Robinson, but both him and Byron Pringle, and you gave them to Meikle Hardman, Mahomes has bigger numbers right now. That's just true. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's lost on Andy Reid. I think he – having a longer view than than, you know, certainly us looking at week to week, you know, DFS kind of lens of it, frames of analysis, frames of reality that are that are basically the the standard nowadays with everybody so plugged in, in every sense of the word. It's, it's like, We've, we, we lose sight of some of those things and I'm included on that like I've, I've more than anyone I'm sure have been like why the hell are they throwing these passes to Demarcus Robinson uh, when he's just awful and you have Michael Hardman over here who threw uh, whatever 1200 NFL snaps is averaging like 12 and a half yards a target on 68% catch rate and he has like 15 touchdowns on 70 catches or something and it's like I guess I have to believe that Andy Reid is just kind of chuckling to himself about that, and it's they certainly unleashed him a bit last week. Right in the first drive, he had three catches or something. So mm-hmm. if, if they keep going back to that, I just think that Miko, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, and Mahomes is far too much for probably any defense to deal with, and I don't know why – a sort of speed challenged money ball defense would be better suited than any other to deal with it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, uh, you know, my, my, my basic thought is you have to be perfect to beat the chiefs and their perfect beats your perfect 10 times out of 10. So if, if the chiefs play well, I think it, your, your, your chances of coming out alive are, are extremely, extremely slim. So again, the bills will need to play close to a perfect game in this one and the, the chiefs might, might need to be a little bit slow I didn't think the chiefs looked, looked great last week. I mean, I'm not saying that and you know that there is a question of them needing to, you know that haven't they not covered a spread in like nine weeks or something and that you know the, but sometimes you, you can get worried about teams that that have that have that need to flip a switch one way or the other. but with the Chiefs, I trust them wholeheartedly, like more than any other team
1: to have that gear. Yeah, and the spread thing is is kind of like a little potentially noisy because it's like if they're going badly against the spread, those are probably spreads where the public is generally betting on the Chiefs because they're, you know, so intimidating. And in this case, six out of 10 bets are apparently on the bills right now at plus three. So uh, Vegas is not in the business of being on the wrong side of these things, and it it doesn't doesn't really look f- from that lens that there's much encouraging for the bills to take away like i i just don't see where, the, where there's like you know the the hint of of something that the bills have in their favor it's like it, they they just need some form of chance to kind of bring an anomalous outcome and it's it's just it's hard enough to do that anyway just on the quality basis but you you mentioned you know that the chiefs didn't look that great last week if you think about it, pretty much all of their playoff wins and, you know, certainly plenty of the regular season wins, they have a quarter or two here and there where they don't look very good. The mm-hmm. reason that the Chiefs are so ridiculously unbeatable so much of the time is that they only need one good quarter to put you away for good. And it's it's insane, but it's true. It's like that, that Texans game, I guess, was the most extreme illustration of it. It's like they're down twenty eight oh it's a laugher it's like oh that's okay we can put 35 we can go on a 35 point run if, if as long as we have like 20 minutes to yeah do it. It,
2: it happened in um yeah another you know uh anecdote for, from last season but I think there there was a game against the Raiders early in the season the one where Miko had the long touchdown called back where like the the Chiefs did all their damage in like the second quarter and it that was it like the the Raiders kept it close for the first quarter the Chiefs blew it up in the second half and that that was it that was like the end of the game like all the points in that game were scored in the second quarter
1: yeah so that's that's why i see it obviously we're agreeing on the kansas city side there and for for whatever sort of the buffalo side uh i don't want to make it sound like this will be an uncompetitive game i think it'll be very much competitive it's just the buffalo defense is what i don't see much hope for the buffalo offense i mean when you have this much firepower you're, you're probably going to be fine in most settings and including this one it's just that the question is not whether they will be good or more or less the version of themselves that we've come to expect. They need to be similarly good as the Chiefs, and I think that the Chiefs' defense is about as good as the Bills' defense, and I don't think the Bills have as much firepower as the Chiefs do on offense. They have
2: zero-run game, first of all, to That's work true. With. So or Josh I, Allen
1: is a running game. <laughs> yeah, basically. I, I mean, I don't
2: think they can get away with with just having zero like didn't they have like two runs in the first half
1: last week or something like Yeah, that was interesting. I wasn't exactly against it, but it was interesting to see because you have a lot of analysis, these frames of analysis, these these people with certain analytical ideologies kind of saying like Returns don't diminish. You just got to do this. Look at this. These are the averages. So you have to do things like this based on these averages because there's no way any of these variables will change as, as you increase the usages of, of certain players. No, stocks and go was up. Like, they only go yeah, up. It was, yeah, just throw more, you'll get touchdowns. I like my I'm pretty sure that's what the math says here. It's like, "No, man, if you throw every play, the returns will diminish." 5.6 yards per attempt for Allen last week. Here's open and shut proof. How's that for you? <laughs> uh, no, this is just an anomaly. Oh, okay then. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so if if they throw every play, then then clearly, you know, the defense starts to position itself as if they will not run on any given play. And if if the defense thinks they might run on a given play, then they'll Position themselves accordingly. So it's as simple as that. I and mean, this is again, any anybody who's played pop Warner football can understand this basic idea. But uh, look, look at who our leaders are, and I guess you can figure out why we've forgotten of such obvious things.
2: Well said, well said, sir. So if if there is any one, you know, with, with that Bills passing attack, obviously that that is going to be. If that does, if that's not clicking on on all, all cylinders and this one could get fairly ugly um you know with the, with the bills not being able to keep up potentially um is there anyone that you know with your knowledge of defensive back personnel and, and how they match up against certain receivers you know is there any one guy on on this um bill's offense is it is it stefan diggs with his like precise route running and ability to just kind of move the chains over and over again every time you target him is it john brown with with his speed is it gabriel davis with his size any of those guys that could potentially fit the bill as a matchup problem for the chiefs
1: not really i think that the chiefs i mean i don't I don't know enough about this i'm not like ted Wynn or you know Derek Klassen or Seth Galina these people who who really know the X's and O's enough to to speak credibly on it but just my general sense of watching the Chiefs and looking at their personnel and the results those personnel get uh, keeping in mind the the their their uh, strengths and weaknesses the basic deal is we I think have a, a scheme that is uh, it's not exactly it's not like a moneyball thing the exact same way that Sean McDermott is but you got Chavarius Ward at left corner you got Bashad Breeland at right corner. Neither of them is a great player or anything, but the results have been pretty great. And so particularly when I think about Bashad Breeland, this is a guy who got beat deep all the time uh, pretty much before this year. And he was, he was like a ball hawk guy coming out of Clemson. He, he can make some plays on the ball, but he just he's not very fast. He, he'll bite on double moves, things like that. Uh, so if he's having great results rather than sort of average like he would normally be expected to, I have to chalk up some of that distinction to the to the scheming of the defense. And I, if I think of, you know, well, how does how does Bashad Breland not lose in ways that he used to lose? Then I think it's basically because they're they're doing kind of like the hybrid of man coverage and zone coverage, something like man match or whatever. It's like they'll have you bump. Uh, they'll have you like do bump and press at the line. But they won't have you play man coverage after the jam. Like they'll they'll like drop off into a zone after the jam. Stuff like that, so that they can basically make it more like a cover three kind of thing, where they tell Bashad Breeland and Charvarius Ward, you're covering the sideline and then behind you. Like don't like they'll 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 of course cover a crossing route if a man coverage is the call, but like they get them in positions enough often enough where it's more so reduced to a task where Charvarius, you you're a 6'1", 200-pound corner who runs a 4'4", has a 40-inch vertical. We're going to keep you on the sideline because you're a tall guy who can run fast and jump higher than other people. And it's like, that suits him. He doesn't. It doesn't suit him as much running over the middle of the field with some, you know, Smurf receiver because he's a big guy who is fast in a straight line. So keep him in tasks like that. Like a Jamel Dean with Tampa. It's like, you want him playing the sideline and downfield where you can leverage his, his reach and speed um, and, you know, reduce exposure to things that he's not great at. So I think you're going to see a good amount of zone coverages here where you basically have Bashad Breland and Tavarius Ward outside kind of working like bumpers in a bowling alley, trying to channel the usage toward the middle of the field, where they've got guys like Juan Thornhill playing deep, Tyron Matthew uh playing all over the place. I guess that's kind of how I would expect them to play it. So if they play it with a lot of zones like that, Stefan Diggs isn't really going to have any did, matchups. Did Baltimore
2: just... do that last week? In... Yes, they okay. did. Because, because they didn't, they did not
1: use Humphrey as a shadow corner very much, and I think that's the right way to play it. Because it's uh, Baltimore's offensive play calling was totally stupid in that game, but their defense yeah. was actually pretty smart. Because yeah, I mean they they gave up almost
2: nothing. I mean again, five point six yards per attempt to Josh Allen. The the Bills' offense only scored ten points.
1: Yeah, and I saw I don't know who it was. It might have been like NFL Next Gen or Matt Harmon or somebody like that. I can't remember, but I, I was actually saying last week. I wouldn't play press coverage against Diggs. I would just say to hell with it and go with zones because I just assumed like it seems like you can't beat him with press coverage in it. Somebody posted some numbers saying like, well, on press coverage, single coverage this year, Stefan Diggs has like the highest quarterback rating when targeted. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, So, yeah, it's it's, it just does not uh, like I, I think you want more zones against Josh Allen as a general rule, both because it's easier to disguise what you're doing pre snap and it's easier to keep eyes on him if he threatens to run. Like if you're doing man coverage, you're going to have to turn your backs to, to, to run with the receivers if they get far enough down the field. So when you're turned, you can't keep an eye on Allen, obviously, and he can run easier in that case. But it's not just that. It's like the pre-snap motion. If you're in man coverage, your guy is going to have – to whoever's matched up against whoever is going to have to trail that person when they go in motion. So Allen can put someone in motion and then say, OK, that it's man coverage first of all or at least this guy's in man coverage. He's going over here. Uh, I can tell this guy's taking a gap like this, so he's he's not going to go this way. They don't really run stunts that go over this way. So this part of the field is going to be open, and I can I can isolate Diggs over here or John Brown or Gabriel Davis over here or Cole Beasley over here, and if that falls through, I guess I'll just run. And that's what the game has been for Allen so much this year. So if you if you change it instead to something where he just has to look at the pre-snap and, and consider the whole field and have to try to think as he's... You know, going through his cadence, he's, he's trying to think, like, where are all those guys going? OK, I have an idea. Maybe, well, I don't know what the hell Matthew's doing. He can do anything on this play. But I think I'll just I'll just see what Stefan's doing. And it's like that's those are the plays probably where you see jo- Josh Allen go back to pass and he looks around and he doesn't see anything. And and that's when you start to see him look like he did before this year, basically. And I think you just have to get the game reduced to one where Josh Allen has to make as many decisions as possible, thinking as much as possible because if you let him isolate the variables and reduce the game to kind of just a reaction of you know chucking the ball at a certain part of the field it's like he's making the correct reads when the defense shows what they're doing and as much as i still think he's not that accurate of a passer he's doing a, a i think dable gets a lot of credit for this too they're doing a good job of making sure that a high percentage of his throws are low risk throws like i think they, they get guys who are you know, maybe they're not going to catch the ball in this play, but if, if he if the receiver doesn't catch it, it's not at a very high risk of getting picked off, yeah, by like yeah. The, by a safety over the you
2: top. definitely noticed that last week where where um, you know, he he sails one or whatever, and it you know, just turns out there was no one in the area. it, it It's not like his bad passes are, are necessarily yes. getting penalized. That's a good point, yeah,
1: exactly. They've made his bad throws the kind of throws that can't be caught by anybody. Mm-hmm. It's like before his bad throws could be caught by the defense. Now it's like every time he has a bad throw, it doesn't matter because no one could catch it anyway. So yeah, I think zones are ways of, of reducing those isolated matchup outcomes that, that he needs to produce the way he has this year. And I think the chiefs have a lot of good and varied personnel for handling it. And this is also a setting where Chris Jones could be a problem because yeah, uh, he's he's just the kind of guy who can take over any game. It's not like the Bills are weak to him. The Bills offensive line has done great, but that's kind of a money ball offensive line in my opinion. Both in the sense that like, uh, I I mostly I just think that like they're getting some results that um, besides Dable's adv- advantageous coaching and scheming, Josh Allen having the arm that he does and his ability to break tackles the way that he does. Forces defenses to entirely differently manage their pass rushing resources and so I think that like he he kind of just uh, Not to take anything away, especially from like a guy like Deion Dawkins who just seems really good uh, But more like the guards like Brian Winters and Feliciano and whoever else like I don't think those guys are that great I think it's just that when you're going against Josh Allen You're you kind of have to go with a four-man rush all the time because you need a spy or you need a robber or You need to double team Stephon Diggs or something like that but that's that's why Chris Jones is such a big deal because he can do that on his own. Like yes. he can just single handedly wreck an offensive line, and guys like John Feliciano and Brian Winters don't want to block him. Like they're gonna to have to double team him well, and sometimes double teaming Chris Jones well still isn't enough. Like he's just he's just a terror. So um, there's there's enough ways I feel like that the Chiefs kind of have you know, actual firepower on defense here that I don't think it's like I don't think they're just at the mercy of Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs. Like I think there's a real struggle to occur there. Okay.
2: So then bottom line, how do you see this one shaken out?
1: Well I have a lot of respect for Buffalo's coaches and like they're a talented team, so it's it should be close. I just don't know how short of Mahomes being injured or unavailable, I just don't know how uh they they get I don't know, to I – guess, I guess three points is pretty easy to make a game these days, but I, I just think that I would take the Chiefs to win by something like six or something. Like one of, one of those goofy scores because somebody started going for two to catch up or get the nice uh, point distance that they wanted off of the score or something like that makes it like a six-point kind of game.
2: Okay. I got it as Chiefs 31, Bills 21. So I like the Chiefs and I think under.
1: it'll be a little closer, but I, I, that is kind of how I'm thinking too.
2: The chi- I mean, the Chiefs can just do it to any. I mean, it can be closer than that for most of the game, but I, I think in the end, once the clock strikes zero, that I think this this is more likely to be a double digit win for the Chiefs than it is any sort of victory for the Bills, in my opinion.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely on the side of uh, take the Chiefs to to cover. Okay, before we move on. To the
2: NFL rookie running backs, we got a message from our friends over at BetMGM. Sports bettors know that magic happens when you turn a hunch into action and apply the right amount of expertise. That's why BetMGM has teamed up with RotoWire to offer new BetMGM subscribers a free six-month subscription when they place their first bet. Register on the BetMGM app or website and use promo code Roto—that's R-O-T-O—to claim your free subscription. Once you make your first sports wager, you'll receive a season's length of RotoWire's unmatched sports insights. Find out why BetMGM is the king of sports books by signing up and placing your first bet today. Visit. Visit. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions 21 years or older to wager Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, Nevada, Tennessee, and West Virginia only. Please gamble responsibly. If you have a gambling problem, call one 800 522-4700 in Colorado and Nevada, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey and West Virginia. If you're in Tennessee, call or text the red line. That's 800-889-9789. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Promotional code or promotional offer not available In Nevada, And we also have a message from our friends over at Monkey Knife Fight. With your season-long fantasy football leagues now complete, this is a great time to check out our friends at Monkey Knife Fight, the fastest-growing site in daily fantasy. The NHL and NBA are already in full swing, and the NFL playoffs are here. So the time is now to take advantage of a 100% instant match up to $50 on your first deposit by using the promo code WIRE. Visit MonkeyKnifeFight.com and use promo code W-I-R-E today. All right, Mario, let's go on. We just broke down the uh, NFL Conference Championship matchups. Those were great, of course. Let's get into the draft. Um, Of course, we only have a couple NFL games left after this weekend. We only got the one remaining, so we got to turn our focus, of course, uh, towards the draft. Um, this is going to be an interesting pre-draft process. It sounds like the combine is not going to be centralized, so there's it's going to be kind of a mess as as far as figuring things out, as far as as we're concerned. But that's besides the point. We we talked about the receivers the last couple of weeks, so I figured today we could touch on uh, the rookie running back or the upcoming class of running backs. Uh, leading things off, if we were doing this pod same time last year and etn still hadn't decided to come back yet would he have been ahead of jonathan taylor for you
1: yeah i think i would have ranked him kind of as a 1a to taylor as 1b those two being the first tier and i yeah i was prepared to have it that way because my basic process is to just kind of defer to production you know it's like i I know um some people might look at my rankings and people disagree with them often enough that I suppose they look and they're like, I can't really tell what you're thinking here. I actually am very predictable with this stuff. I I don't exactly just hit descend with the numbers, you know, it's not that simple, but I think there are certain thresholds of production a player can pass at which point it's time to just kind of stop asking questions or like start asking different ones, you know, and none of the questions that I have about ETN or Jonathan Taylor were like You know, can they run at the next level? It was just how good will they be? Like, clearly they're better than these other guys. Uh, You can't run this far ahead of everybody else unless you have something on them talent wise, because we've seen enough uh, enough other Wisconsin running backs, enough other Clemson running backs. These two don't compare to those past cases, and they certainly don't compare to their peers in the draft in terms of production. And then uh, that was all the one A, the one B of ETN and Taylor was pending the combine And I I was a little anxious about that because we had reason to believe even back last year that Taylor is actually faster than Travis ETN, even though he's about 20, 25 pounds heavier. And that matters to me. 40, uh, 40 time combine stuff matters to me. Uh, not as like a clinching detail, but it's, I, I just kind of use all these, all these, uh, considerations as kind of like sub filters and it, it just narrows the possibilities for me when I apply them. And, you know, it's like, ETN and Taylor basically have the same level of inconceivably productive college careers, you know. It's like in, in ETN's case, it's really wacky stuff actually to just – to be able to average 7.2 yards per carry or whatever it is over your career while having 70 touchdowns. eight six carries. Insane. Mm-hmm. 70 touchdowns too. Like we can't – you can't exactly go adding like infinity yards at the end of every touchdown. run. But we have to remember that a lot of these tackles are being done by the goal line, you know. Like yes. he's not – He's not actually getting stopped. The number of plays on which he just simply wasn't caught is unprecedented. It has to be like the only the only player who could possibly be close are, are like Bryce Love. The one year that he had a like 2000 yards at eight yards of carry and Dree Archer at Kent State uh, when he had his like 2000 yard, eight yards of carry season. But none of those guys did it over this big of a sample and they didn't do it at Clemson and they didn't outplay all these other good players doing it it's it's insane like to me Travis Etienne probably has like an effective yards per carry in his career of probably closer to like 8 yards a carry over four full seasons i've seen people saying like oh no his stock is lower now because he he regressed as a senior he only had 5.5 yards per carry it's like look man you guys for how much there's all these people saying like yards per carry is a fake stat it doesn't mean anything the people who do cite it are remarkably bad at handling it like it's that's not how you apply it like especially when he, the guy has 14 touchdowns in the sample like come on keep keep the perspective just try to keep a perspective and, and there's I'm,
2: I'm, there's other contexts too where like you know you, you could point to that not being etn's fault i mean how did clemson lose
1: against ohio state their offensive line got mauled well, 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 that and it's like 14 touchdowns on 168 carries is outrageous. That is a ton of touchdowns and you have to re- realize that when you expand the sample, uh, there's probably going to be four fewer touchdowns in the in when the, you know, average is correct and the yards per carry is going to go back up to 6.8 or something like that. Hmm. Like those those carries won't end at the goal line, so he'll go another 20 yards on, you know, at least three or four of them. Like that's what's going on here and we know that because Here's how the first 3 seasons went. 107 carries, 13 touchdowns at 7.2 yards per carry. 204 carries with 24 touchdowns at 8.1 yards per carry. 207 carries for 16 or for 19 touchdowns at 7.8 yards per carry. You can't have that level of touchdown production that consistently with that kind of yardage production unless this is a singular talent even if he's slow or something like there's clearly something going on here that hasn't happened before. And I'm not saying ETN is the best player of all time or anything. I'm just saying Travis ETN hasn't happened yet. Like there, there is no precedent for a player producing like this. So he could still be a bust. He could, he could still not be good, but no one can say that he's like CJ Spiller who would otherwise be a pretty reasonable comparison, especially as like a cautionary tale uh, being a top 10 pick from Clemson being a speed back he ran like a 427 or something. So he was fast as hell and yet his on-field results still didn't amount to as much as ETN. So maybe that's just vision, maybe it's balance, maybe it's something about how he knows how to make cuts on the field. The good the the beauty is I don't care and it doesn't matter to me. It's like the results are all I need to see. I can just defer to the results and trust that something will work itself out there. And that's that's the process that we used with Taylor. It's just look People don't produce like this, and especially if he runs the way Bruce Feldman predicted that he would, this is a singularly great running back prospect. I I don't know why it was so hard to get people to understand that about Taylor. It's like you show them all this stuff and it's like, come on, think it through. He's 230. He's faster than whatever other running back you think is better than him who didn't produce as much as him in college. What – literally, what could he have done differently to have convinced you? And there's no answer to that question that sounds vaguely sane, and yet people were going through like – overthinking it galaxy braining themselves into believing that like Clyde Edwards Hilaire and DeAndre Swift were better it's like no it was never close and it's not close between those guys and ETN either like ETN would have to run like a 458 or something at 200 pounds for me to rethink any of this
2: okay all right that's that's strong man I I love that um and you know I, I do feel like ETN definitely um yeah, the narrative around him is different right now than than it was a year ago. It does feel like the consensus, like you were saying, seems to suggest that he got worse this year, and that I don't think that that really is the case. If anything, the only thing thing that you could ding him for was going back and getting you know another 160 or you know 200 offensive touches on his
1: body before he gets the NFL. Um, it was a bad decision for sure. Yeah. But you'll notice all those people who are like, good for him, getting his degree, now they're the same ones who are like, I don't know, he's kind of old as hell yeah. and all busted and worn out. Boo. Boo. Oh
2: man. So so Travis Etienne, again, uh rightfully the the number one running back in your tiers. And he's in a tier of his own, of course, as well. No one else really uh coming that close to him. I mean how far to you is the distance between ETN and Najee Harris at, who headlines your your second tier
1: Well in my personal rankings it's quite a bit I don't think they'll be that far apart in the draft though and Najee Harris could go ahead of ETN in the draft I mean teams make bad picks all the time I think that Harris will be a good NFL player though I don't think uh, like I was pretty suspicious of him if only just because some of the worst analysts around like especially Matt Miller was really hyping him a lot and I I looked at just kind of – like I'm looking at the long perspective of Alabama running back play. And I know how people just, again, have trouble maintaining perspective on things. And so like Najee Harris, they're they're talking about him like he's the shiniest thing in the world. I'm just inclined to not really believe those people because they're always just – they're just not fit to speak on whatever they're speaking about. Like they don't know what they're talking about. Um, But I I do think that Harris – uh, for reasons that don't really have much to do with what those people talk about. I think Harris does have a good case for certainly being like a second round pick. Um, the people who say that he's better than ETN, I think have kind of like, I, there's, there's a basis in the stats and certainly precedent, you know, like if you, if you run a query for the number of, for, for, for the NFL prospects, the draft prospects who have Harris's, uh, you know, weight, threshold and production thresholds at certain ages and like thresholds of explosiveness in his production like he's he's always had high yards per carry high yards per target stuff like that and then if you put in a variable about like recruiting status you know him probably a high four at worst a no, five. He, star no, he
2: was like a, i think he might have been at least on one major site the number one player in his class yeah
1: so it's like all these things traditionally like that sort of process would lead you to Cam Akers last year, which, you know, it's like I, I think it's it's actually hilarious that anyone would think he's as good as Jonathan Taylor. But like it's it's more or less of a, a sound process because you didn't pick a bad player uh, with that process. And, you know, there are there are certainly processes that could lead you to worse places. Uh, but I just think that. um and by the way, like there is there is a good basis for saying like, well, if ETN is only 510, 200, then that's actually a concerning precedent because, you know, we you generally want a runner who's over 210 or, or whatever. And that's all true. I just am the way I look at things. I don't care about somebody being an anomaly. I want the anomaly. Like, I think we can find the anomalies. I don't think it's that hard. Um, so w- when someone says like, oh, that's an anomalous outcome, though, if ETN is that good, I'm like oh, all the more for me, then you don't need to come with. That's fine. Um, But I I think that it's it's like it's mistaking generally sound acknowledgement of precedent for specific evidence, which I don't think I just don't think there's specific evidence to put Harris over ETN like he he um, he's he's not like a, a Derrick Henry or anything like that. You know, like I was. We were both big Derrick Henry super fans years before he actually broke out, mm-hmm. and I've never mistaken Najee Harris for Derrick Henry or Eddie Lacy on tape. He's if he's going to be good in the NFL, it's going to be more of a Lavian Bell kind of aesthetic. Like he, can, like he can, he's that. got he's got some anchor and some some muscle, and he's he plays with motor. He's not soft or anything like that. But he's not he's not a brute like Derrick Henry. It's just not like that. He's more of a. He's he's more of a lateral kind of guy than Derrick Henry. He's more of a flexible kind of runner. I just worry a little bit about that because he's listed at 6'2", 230, and I expect he'll be listed at 6'1", 228, or 6'1", 230, something like that. Um, but so, some of the movements he does, he almost looks more like a receiver or something. And, you know, you don't want to – there's a certain threshold of of height to density that you don't want to go over. As, as a running back because it's like you start to get into josh adams kind of territory where you're just too tall to be running in that part of the field mm-hmm. you know or, or if you want to be that tall and running in that part of the field like derrick henry does you better be pushing 250 pounds like you need to have the actual anchor to go with the frame to 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 have your traits as a as an open field runner and as a, as a between the tackles runner show up in traffic when the hits actually start coming and i do worry a little bit about harris if, if he measures in at like six two and a quarter and 225 pounds or something, I'm actually going to get a little worried because that's, that's just uh that that's the kind of frame that I think you see more in situational players like Latavius Murray, uh, where it's like, you know, they're, they're great. Latavius Murray is a great athlete and he, he's still never been able to harness his raw athleticism as much on the field in terms of production as people had expected, because it's like, yeah, the guy can run like hell. It's no one's doubting that. But when you have to specifically run between the tackles of the defense, and you have to do it if you're if you're gonna take on volume doing it, if the defense is going to basically know your look and, and kind of come to understand when you're coming for them, they can start getting better shots on you. you know, they're not gonna miss quite as much the second and the third time. So if you're if you're tall and you don't have enough anchor to 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 both brace physically for the contact and also get the better of the defenders like you need to get that center of gravity advantage you need the leverage you need leverage in football and i don't know if a six two and a third uh six two and a third six two and three-eighths guy at 225 i don't know if that's enough like derrick henry can get away with six three because he's 247 you know you don't yeah. you don't get to be six three, 220 unless you want to be that was chris brown the colorado running back and he got his head ripped off a million times for it he ran like hell like Colorado too, big time college player. So um, I want to see Harris more like six one two thirty 230 because Le'Veon Bell has already shown that that can work, at least if you have that freakish three-cone time that he did. But there's also reason to believe Harris will test pretty well as far as three-cone and jumps go because he, he looks pretty flexible for a guy as big as he is. Like He, he looks like he's athletic. It, that does not look like a concern for him. But sure. I don't see the ability to split the safeties over and over. I don't see that just – that just kill shot that etn just set up over and over and over like basically no running back i can remember yeah
2: etn etn was was just different Najee harris of course like coming off the incredible um season but i I also tend to i think that there's a little bit of uh fluff in some of the uh production i mean the 26 touchdowns like that's uh, i mean that's crazy that's so much uh, you know, I think a lot of that just kind of happened to be like a function of Alabama's offense and just it being that much better than everyone else it was going against and him running behind the best offensive line in college football and running against defenses that already had to worry about what Mac Jones was going to do when he drops back to pass to throw it to Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddle. So I mean
1: Also, I think it's I think it's worth pointing out as as good as Harris was, and he was he was really good at Alabama. Like I I I, I think he'll be a good NFL player, to be clear. Like I am not really worried about harris being some kind of mega bust i'm not really worried about that um but i think he's more likely to be kind of an average starter than some of his proponents might think and if you need evidence of that like just go look at how josh jacobs and damian harris played at alabama it's like he he wasn't obviously better than them or anything like he's a better prospect than both of them um but jacobs should not have gone in the first round and so if anyone's like you know, Josh Jacobs was a first round pick and he's so good because his PPR numbers were this or whatever as a rookie. And if you look at, uh, historically 21 and a half years old and under who had this much yardage from scrimmage as rookies, they're all, all pros. Like anybody thinking that line of, of logic on Josh Jacobs has been tricked. He is not that good. He never was that good. He was overdrafted. He should have been in the third round. Like Damian Harris was Najee still to me is only more like a top 50 kind of guy, even though I think he's safely better than those two.
2: Okay. All right. That's it. That's good perspective there. Um, you know, it, it's okay to, you know, just kind of give some perspective. There, there's just so much wild discourse in draft Twitter where it's like, if he's anything less than like one of the top five running backs in the league, then, then he, then he must suck, you know, ty- type of thing. It's like, no, like that it's the, just kind of the way that life works. Like it, there, there are the tails, there are the extremes, but most people fall somewhere in the middle. So uh, Najee Harris probably falls, you know, if you're looking at a bell curve, you know, further to the right the, than most, but you know, he's not necessary. He doesn't have statistical tail the, the way that like a, a Travis Etienne does with, with the, like his explosiveness, that type of thing. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, a Le'Veon Bell comp for for Harris that that sounds pretty good to me. I think that yeah, that in terms of that size combo with the anchor on top of it and that that kind of like not north south guy but a guy who's a little bit more patient and also re- really effective in, in the passing game yeah um, three as, down as guy well for sure. so good stuff there um but but yeah no one to get like completely like over your skis with and then what's interesting about this class mario is that like man it once you get past those top two it's total eye of the beholder and i, I was very interested to see where you would go with with uh your rb3 and i was pleased to see where you did who was that
1: yeah, Kylan Hill, who I uh, I know you've you've tipped me off to him for a while now, and I didn't really take a look that closely until this. Um, he's he's pretty interesting. I, I don't like guessing on tape how fast guys are. Like I, I it's just an easy way to look like an idiot. Um, so I don't want to make too specific of any kind of a proclamation. But when you just look at Kylan Hill. And it's backed up by his listed height weight of 511-210. He's he looks a lot like Miles Sanders to me, and specifically being, you know, just under six feet, under two hundred and fifteen pounds, but with a with a distinctly agile, explosive kind of like anchor to burst conversion, like the ability to the the one thing that Miles Sanders always stood out for in his tape for me at Penn State was the way he could uh, not just stop and start, but the way he could kind of violently stop and like he, he would put like a lot of torque on his ankles and feet and then burst out of it without having to gather himself at all. And like that kind of that ability to convert anchor into explosiveness is, is something that I think you'll you'll see both with Hill's tape and Sanders' tape. So he'll need to actually test similarly well as Sanders for me to be able to credibly stand by that comparison but i i think he will i think he looks like a low four five high four four kind of guy like sanders with with again that that kind of functional athletic that's hard to quantify or describe where it's basically like they can they can go fast in in a number of directions but not just not just in terms of speed there's like specifically that anchor part where they can get low and and like grip the the ground with their feet to, to brace for contact withstand contact and then go burst running again like that's that's good traits to have and his production is only very promising like both as a runner and as a pass catcher admittedly at separate points because they're insane yeah this year was this was, it was, it was so weird <laughs> Yeah, he, his, his box score from this year is insane. But it was useful all the same because it showed what he could do if you gave him a lot of pass catching yes. work. So he he he'd only passed that test with, you know, not just pass it, he, he aced it. And we knew going into this year that he could do the running part because he already did that two years ago. So if he tests as well as he looks on tape, then I think he will be a pretty easily justified second round, maybe late second. But I, I still didn't, I did not feel the need to hedge with sec two to three with him. I, I just, I was like, this is a second round guy. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Kylan Hill.
2: And for those unaware as to why like the rushing w- was kind of non-applicable this year, Mississippi state switched to an air raid offense with, with Mike Leach coming down. So uh, you know, he had no more than seven carries in any of his three games. So again, not really applicable stuff, but he had three years of, of promising sample as a rusher prior to this year and not a ton of, of pass catching volume. So he actually this year in three games had the most receptions that he ever did in any one single season of at least 11 games. So uh, that that goes to show you that when he was tested on that front, I, he did pass it. So that that's a, a good way of putting it. Um, I, I like having him number three. Let's go number four. Um, let's go Chuba Hubbard, um, a guy who, similar to Travis Etienne, I think a lot of people were surprised that he came back for the 2020 season. Big mistake.
1: Yeah, it didn't turn out great. Uh, it n- never does, you know? It has literally never turned out great, and yet. <laughs> I still get this crap every year. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he uh, he came back to work for free. He got predictably hurt doing it. And now that will be predictably held against him uh, as a prospect. So it's ridiculous. But I, I do think eventually the, the league, if necessary, will end up higher on him than draft media people. Like the people who are looking at Chuba's last. First of all, his his 2020 season was fine. There's nothing bad about his 2020 season, especially when you account for the the injury that he was managing. It's like having a five what is this five six games of. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to load the yeah, He Yeah, seven had, games.
2: 133 carries, 625 yards, so that's 4.7. So that's not great. And you see the other Oklahoma State running backs absolutely tear it up um,
1: bl- right, alongside
2: so- him. That it does kind of like hurt optically to to
1: see that. Right. But if, if people maintain like kind of a coherent perspective on it, they would they would look back at, oh, well, clearly this 625 for five touchdowns on 4.7 yards per carry, which, again, is not really that bad, especially if he's playing hurt. And especially if it's like he's because of covid or the injury, he's missing out on games that other running backs have against, you know, the the cupcake defenses where they they really juice their averages like all it takes is one big game on a seven game sample a, a prior seven game sample to change that back to last year's averages one game of like 12 carries for 125 yards just totally flips the picture back over to what it was before this year so if it's if it's on that flimsy of a basis then i just don't care personally especially at least when we have the 2018 season where he was he was good it wasn't It wasn't anything amazing, but it was good as a redshirt uh, redshirt freshman in his second year at Oklahoma State. Ran for 740 yards and seven touchdowns at six yards a carry. Caught 22 of 28 targets for 229 yards, so totally decent pass-catching work. I admittedly don't know how he projects It's It's hard to look at just college tape and college production and know how a guy might fit as a pass-catcher at the next level because Miles Sanders is the best by far example of this. His numbers at Penn State were toilet quality like just absolute garbage horrible horrible like really bad and yet his rookie year with the Eagles he had like 600 yards receiving and was was doing really high yards per target numbers um that obviously was like a flash in the pan kind of thing but it just shows that like these these numbers don't necessarily mean that much or, or like Jonathan Taylor yep. you know it's was like he, he caught whatever like 10 passes at Wisconsin and um, he wasn't exactly Austin eckler out there but he caught like 98% of his targets um, for quite a bit of yardage so i don't know what to call it on the pass catching question as an athlete who chuba can definitely do it and his numbers at a glance at oklahoma state are just fine um, but the the main case for him the main the main selling point for him is definitely that 2019 season yes. where in 13 games he ran for 2094 yards and 21 touchdowns 6.4 yards per carry Now, that much yardage, that much yards per carry, that much touchdowns in just 13 games, like that's where we're getting into kind of like ETN territory as far as this is a guy who keeps breaking the backs of defenses. Like you don't have numbers like that unless you are completely just snapping defenses in half. And he's going to be – like that was his third year in college. So it wasn't like an obvious age advantage kind of thing. Uh, And the other thing is like we know he has a track background. And the weight that he comes in at will help determine the reasonable expectation. Uh, But at six foot 208 listed height weight, I would be pretty surprised if he ran any worse than like a four, four, seven. Like if if he was slower than Cam Akers, I would be shocked. I think Uh, even if he weighed, uh, even if he was like 220 pounds, I think he would run a a four, four, seven. And if you're talking like over two fifteen and running a sub four, five, that's just one of those clubs that. Uh, gets you kind of in in the NFL like even if they don't really like your tape even if his politics are held against him as a prospect teams aren't really going to be able to get on the clock look at that kind of size and speed and production and say no thank you like if if he runs that for you like we think he can like like he basically has in the past when he was doing his track uh competing He's gonna go in the second round. Like you don't. It, he, by the way, could run more like a four three eight two. Like it's hard to know for sure. But if he ran a sub four four forty, especially if he's more like two ten than two twenty, that would be not at all surprising.
2: Okay. All right. So, so reasons to be optimistic on, on the frame and the and the size adjusted athleticism for him on on top of the numbers as well.
1: Yeah, I think like Ryan Matthews kind of comparison, something like that. Ooh, I like that one. Yeah, he had he had a couple. Really not going that high in the draft, but that kind of player, I guess.
2: Okay, that that checks out. Um, let's go last guy, Kenneth Gainwell out of Memphis. If he sounds unfamiliar to you, he did not play uh, this past year, opted out, um, but was absurd. I, I mean, especially for for me as like you know the guy that runs like the the college fantasy section of the website. Um, you know, we, we go into last season and we're we're chasing the next Darrell Henderson, right, and and there are a couple guys on Memphis that that stick out. You know that this guy Kylan Watkins was supposed to be kind of this hot shot recruit by Memphis standards, or, or uh, Timothy Taylor was supposed to maybe be the next guy up, and he had some promising uh, production the year prior in 2018 or whatever it was. But no, it was Kenneth Gainwell, a guy who had all of four carries the previous year um, as a freshman. Uh, went for 91 yards and a touchdown. He comes in. And just takes over for Memphis and, and is the engine b- behind this insanely explosive offense. He, you know, Like you mentioned in your article, he's the reason why Antonio Gibson only had 31 carries or whatever it was in college. It's because Kenny Gainwell was better. Kenneth Gainwell was insane. And he wasn't just ridiculous as a runner where he ran 231 carries, almost 1,500 yards and 13 touchdowns. He was also preposterously effective as a pass catcher and i am interested to hear your thoughts uh, on on the tipping point maybe there there is in in pass catching analysis for for running backs at the college level but 61 targets he caught 51 of them for 610 yards so 10 yards a target and three touchdowns on top of that um, as well so just insane production profile and saved his body the wear and tear um, by not playing in 2020 so I, i think he's well deserving of a top five spot
1: yeah, definitely, and it's you know it's not just uh, Antonio. So uh, I don't know how to say this. So Antonio Gibson basically didn't play running back at Memphis. So it was that not just that it was not just impressive that Gainwell you know got all that work at running back while Gibson was on the team. It's impressive that he so much as even categorized at running back practices in the first place. Because, uh, yeah, I didn't even know who those recruits you were talking about were. But they had Daryl Henderson, Tony Pollard, and Antonio Gibson on the team. And with all of them being there and with Gainwell being as good as a receiver as he is, like probably at least is like a better receiver than Gibson at running back, it's almost so impressive that he didn't get moved to receiver instead of Gibson playing receiver that year prior and, and most of the season, even in 2019. So Gainwell has... At least, at least if we believe that Daryl Henderson, who I know Daryl Henderson has been disappointing, I think it's going to eventually be clear that he's just kind of like a scheme misfit uh, with the Rams, and he'll he'll need to be on another team, and and he'll probably have a a more dignified career on another team. But if we think Daryl Henderson and Tony Pollard are any good, and if we think Antonio Gibson's any good, then we have basically cornered ourselves into believing that Gainwell is some version of good or another, and. I think I think he fits perfectly for the modern game. I mean, I don't know what his forty times supposed to be, and it's especially risky guessing this stuff based on AAC tape. But he looks fast as hell in the tape that I saw, to the point where he almost looks like Reggie Bush or something like that. Not quite that fast. Like I know Bush was an insane athlete coming out of USC, but if Gainwell ran like a sub four four forty, that would not be surprising at all to me. Uh, I don't think he needs to to remain a really good prospect though, because. Um, if he comes in at like 5'10", 207 or something and runs like a 4'48", that's good enough. I don't care because like that, that's not problematically slow or anything like that. And clearly this guy has skill to work with. Like He's not just getting by on raw athletic tools. Uh, yeah, that, that pass catching work was especially encouraging to me. 51 of 61. So that's that's almost 84% catch rate, at 10 yards a target. And that's, like you said, in addition to a high volume of rushing work. I know I normally I know I just said that like I'm I'm kind of anxious about guessing running backs pass catching projection at the others at the next level that is not the case with Gainwell right yeah I mean it's it's yeah. like this is this is something we can absolutely take for granted
2: yeah the, the, most guys aren't aren't tasked with with do uh, with sixty or more targets as a as a starting running back in in college football um, so yeah for, to hold that burden on top of like such a high rushing share as well while holding off guys that are that probably would have had success on the ground too just all of that was so impressive it's just like it it's one of those things when it comes to gain well that uh, you know, I've, I've got a, a peanut brain. I, I I only know what just happened the last couple of months. So I, it took me a minute to kind of like dust off where Gainwell is in my brain because he just didn't play in, in 2020. But, you know, I just got to remember how impressed I was with him throughout the entirety of 2019. He was just unbelievable.
1: Yeah. And as for fantasy purposes, the pass catching is a, is a big part of it. Like I'm listing him next to guys who could be workhorses? I don't think he's really going to be a workhorse in the NFL, but he's one of those guys who can produce as much at least in PPR, he's one of those guys who could still produce as much as the workhorses by being like a 60, 70 catch player at running back. Yeah. No, I
2: could I could definitely see that. And I th- I think that um, you know, he, he might have that opportunity afforded to him because I think whoever drafts him is going to have that in mind when it when it comes to how they want to deploy him. Um have you have you noticed um Maybe I'm just not following the right the right people or, or looking at the right times, but I figured that Gainwell would have a little bit more buzz right now than he does. I mean, am I missing something?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I I, I feel I like guess he, I don't he have would have his hive already by now. I think he's got like Memphis has a bit of an online hive, I think. But as far as like uh like the Devi people who love him, like I definitely remember them two years ago. I think it's just they're kind of um uh, they they I guess they don't have any. You know, events to site as a reason for talking about him. And once we do this decentralized pro day combine thing or whatever, and he runs like Memphis's track is probably somewhat more favorable than the combine. So uh, we're not going to have an equalized 40 time, a baseline 40 time, you know, a DVOA of 40 times uh, between these pro day. Settings, so I could imagine gainwell running like a four three seven or something like that and and if he does that then he'll if, if he runs even a four four five he will definitely get his hype train rolling
2: what if he Henderson's because I, I I thought Henderson was gonna be the fastest running back in 2019 I was wrong
1: yeah I mean Henderson a couple things like he he is pretty fast uh the four five three or whatever he ran was was definitely not slow but also he was 13 pounds heavier i think than what gainwell is listed at so if gainwell go, if gainwell's listed at 511 195 and then he shows up at like 510 208 then yeah i think you uh, at that point his frame is more similar to like henderson or anthony mcfarland or something like that and generally speaking like if you're over 205 at 510 or less you're you're getting pretty uh, certainly by like conventional standards you're getting a bit stocky uh, like you're not you're not like a skinny guy anymore. And Henderson and his game tape might have been running at more like 195 or something like that. Like he might have bulked up to try to be more of a feature back at the combine or something. And maybe that's why he ran the four, three, five. I don't know. But yeah, if, if gamewell shows up at over 205 pounds, then I would say like start thinking more like four or five flat than. Uh, lower mid four fours but I don't truly have any idea like he could he could run a four six for all I know or a four three five I, I really can't tell uh, based on AAC tape but uh, we're gonna we're gonna have I think comprehensive workout numbers this year at least like I, I know that the combine isn't happening but I think all the pro days will happen yeah.
2: Yeah. They'll the, they'll find the, you know, now the, you know, the NFL will be involved in, in oversight on, on this stuff so they they will be getting about as accurate of, of readings. It, it'll just be kind of more of like a, a rollout where, you know, on a given week, Alabama and LSU have their pro days and, and then, you know, so on and so forth. So it won't just be that one giant rush of metrics to sort through. I think it'll be a little bit more like bite-sized pieces
1: as Everyone, the off season uh- progresses.
2: Yeah, everyone's going to get their
1: hype day because of that, because we won't have anything to talk about except, well, it's the Utah Pro Day today. So, <laughs> I don't know. So whoever it is that we d- wouldn't actually care about normally, it's like, well, because we don't have everybody running at once, we all have to pretend we're freaking out about Britton Covey That's or right. whatever. Britton Covey, who uh, w- was
2: starting out at Utah, like when I was starting out at RotoWire, wire which is like six years ago.
1: Yeah, he's he's like, he's an old man. <laughs> It's wild that he's still playing college football.
2: Um, But anyway... On that note, um, I think that's about all the time we have uh, for today. We'll, next week, when there's no uh, NFL games the following Sunday, we'll be able to unpack further um, this group of running backs because it is a varied group, and Mario's next tier of guys, Tier 3, is, is kind of my sweet spot. Those are the guys that will probably be going day two, late Day 2 into Day 3 that I, I think can all be difference makers, all of them really interesting in, in their own uh, given rights. So good stuff, but really good breakdown, of course, Mario. Uh, going over that that top uh, five that, that you have and of course if you haven't read the article yet go ahead rotwire.com slash football check out the dynasty watch you'll find it there pretty easily along with uh, those receivers as we get things rolling for 2021 i think next week is senior bowl so we'll we'll have some some other good stuff here coming out when it when it comes to
1: we'll be hanging out with jim Nagy, (laughs) and uh like we usually do and we'll be wearing our reese's track
2: suits and uh it's going to be very very chill so
1: going to change our avatars to the jim Nagy's twitter avatar
2: (laughs) certainly that won't have any repercussions anyhow that's going to do it for this week's edition of the rotowire nfl podcast we'll be back next week see y'all